Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Each week, we bring you stock market outlooks, macroeconomic updates, and investment strategies that can help you succeed. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience about how they navigate uncertain markets. Prepare to be engaged, enlightened, and entertained by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, as you might know, the show is on a bit of a break as we prepare for season four, and I've been revisiting some of my favorite past episodes. This week, I'm featuring my episode with educator and DEI facilitative leader, Dr. Darnell Fine. In this clip, we discuss the aftermath of George Floyd in an international context and what anti-Blackness really means. When you're done, go back and listen to the original episode, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. As you know, I mean, I think you have to be living under a rock. There, there are two big conversations well, I guess three, if you count the U.S. elections that have been happening this year. Obviously, COVID is one, but the other has been the killing and the murder of George Floyd, which sparked protests globally. And this has just been a topic that has made its way into many of the episodes that we've recorded thus far. But one of the things that seemed to be this I don't know, national, international conversation was really looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion, which I know is very close to your heart. And this is work that you are very involved in and a strong advocate for. And so can you talk a little bit about doing DEI work on the international stage? Often, you know, we think about it, at least here in the U.S., but I don't I don't even think folks realize that this is stuff that people are doing and really pushing for when you kind of look at the world globally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I'm not new to these conversations just because uh, of George Floyd. Like these, like George Floyd is, is an incident that happened in the context of 400 years in the United States, over 400 years in the United States. Uh, and oftentimes we look at these as singular events when it's existed ever since I was born, uh, all the way back until 1619. So when we talk about these incidences or these events, um, looking at them in a wider context of not just historical injustices with, with uh, Black folks in the United States, but a historical catastrophe that continues to go on and on and on. Um, so my whole teacher education program in, in my degree in undergrad was predicated 
on looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion through the lens of the uh, folks in the African diaspora. Um, so I, I think people are arriving to this conversation internationally, but my lens in my pedagogy as an educator has always carried an international pan-African lens, and it's always considered issues of equity in the curriculum. So it, it's, it's not new to me. Um, it's something that I've always done. I see it as being integrated in any classroom that I've been in. Internationally, I think folks are starting to have this conversation. Um, when I first arrived in London, uh, the conversation was happening, but I did a lot of work advancing the conversation and leading different workshops, professional learning, uh, starting affinity groups with underrepresented groups in the middle school and the high school, helping start parent affinity groups, doing work with board committees, uh, a whole lot. And mm -hmm. I started to reach out beyond the confines of my, my school that I was teaching in to other institutions. And I've continued that work here in Singapore where I've done a lot of DEI work within our institution, but I've also been reaching out to different schools and different educators in Africa, Europe, the Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, Asia, uh, Latin America. Um, so the work continues and it will always be there. I see it as something that you can never disconnect mm -hmm. from teaching and teacher education. And so even though obviously George Floyd became a trigger, and as you've said, you've been doing this for a long time, what do you think are some of the challenges right now for people to really pivot and really think critically about what it means to be inclusive? Because you've obviously you're doing work around the globe, but what is it where that you see where folks obviously make the the disconnect or aren't aren't making these spaces as open and as available and as accessible as they could be? Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect yeah. sense. And I think a lot of times people would say that it's based on lack of education and ignorance. And I think that's false. Like folks know what's happening. Like mm. you mm -hmm. ask, you, you ask some of these folks, you, you want to be black for a year. Uh, they, they're not <laughs> trying, they're not trying to be black. Like they're trying to uh, dibble and dabble in black culture, but they're mm. not really trying to live the black experience because they know, they know that, that there is no part of the globe white supremacy hasn't touched. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm not just talking about white folks. I'm talking about anyone mm -hmm. who subscribes to anti-blackness when, mm -hmm. uh, and I've traveled all over the world, even when there's all black communities in West Africa, there's skin lightning mm -hmm. creeps, mm -hmm. or even when you're going to places in South Asia, there's skin lightning creeps. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and just how I'm treated in these different places and how my partner is treated in these different places around the world. Um, anti-blackness is global. And I think people who deep down, they know, even if they don't want to admit that, that white supremacy is pervasive. I think the reason why people don't engage in disrupting those systems is because the systems were designed to uphold, uphold, uh, uphold structures that privilege them and that mm -hmm. sustain their livelihood and that are responsive to their culture. Um, I think it's purposely designed to create an underclass uh, mm -hmm. in different parts of the world. 
if you look at who is employed as domestic help in these different countries that are uh, black and brown, mm-hmm. uh, they're not going to look, they're not going to be white men in, in those positions. They're most likely going to be black and brown women who are employed in those particular positions. Uh, and that's the way the system is designed to make, and that's just one example, but it's to maintain uh, a dominant culture and to maintain maintain white supremacy, maintain patriarchy, maintain uh, a middle and a upper upper middle class or the one percent. Like all of those systems of dominance are dependent on inequality, lack of diversity, and exclusivity. And, you know, I think one of the pieces, I don't know if people want to be obstinate or not, because I'm totally nodding my head as you're talking, is the thing that's so insidious, I think, about white supremacy is that people don't seem to completely understand that it's a system. So Mm -hmm. that even if you individually may not actually be prejudicial or racist, you can still benefit from a system that is. And if the system is working properly, right, all it has to do is have you continue whatever the the tool of delivery is, Mm -hmm. even if you yourself are not prejudicial. And so when you talk about anti-Blackness, like, I just don't think people really get to understand or at least some folks understand the level and the deepness of it because the skin lightning creams drive me nuts. Right. Mm -hmm. I grew up in West sub-Saharan Africa. I grew up in West Africa and, and colorism, which has always been an issue, I think in any kind of black or brown community just gets taken to another level. And so, you know, I see some of these same companies and I've called them out on social media where they've got these great campaigns in North America. Right. Because, mm-hmm. of course, it'd be very weird to say, hey, <laughs> you know, you need to lighten your skin or whatever, who go to these quote unquote developing countries and are also selling products for which people would lighten their skin because and, and perpetuating this idea that the lighter you are, the better you are the more opportunities, which in some cases you may have. And I, but I wonder even with your background and with your training, do you ever get pushback from folks when, when you want to kind of impart this information where they feel like, oh, you're just American, right? So you're coming from the U.S. We don't have that issue here, or that's not our perspective. Amanda, all the time. <laughs> oh, I had somebody tell me that when we talk about people of African descent, that's an American thing. And I was like, how? <laughs> it, it says African. People of African descent. Um, but people see, I think because the United States is such a beacon of white supremacy and this world power, they see these conversations as being very American-centric. Mm. Um, but, but it's not like white supremacy is global. Anti-blackness is global. Like I can point to a number of different, a number of different, um, examples. But if you just do a scan of websites Mm -hmm. of who's teaching in these different international schools, what do they Mm -hmm. look like? And and sometimes I, 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 students will come and interview me about my experience. And I, and I ask them if all of your teachers and all of the leadership look like me in these American schools because I'm American. Mm-hmm. Would your parents send you to this school? 
And they look at me and they say, no, absolutely no. <laughs> not. So when you see these international schools that are saying that they want American teachers, there's right. a phantom implicit racial modifier of white that sits in front of American. And that mm-hmm. phantom racial modifier um, is just one example that shows how anti-Blackness and white supremacy work in these different international settings. I'm sure you've seen the articles, the posts. I mean, I saw one on about a recruiter who did it unnamed about the recruiting practices, particularly when it came to, you know, diversity and how, you know, if you, the way that they would market, it would be biased against those who are coming from non-Western countries. And then English wasn't their first language, which of course took out a whole bunch of other people. And then students really talking about the the struggles that they in that they endured or that they saw not being in the majority. And and in full disclosure, it wasn't necessarily just black, right? It could be mm-hmm. within different other groups. And so, yeah, I mean, even just recruitment, I mean, talk a little bit about that. Just talk about uh in terms of teachers and staff, because I think that's super important, that last point that you made. Just this idea of of Western is a European import. Like that's a European mm-hmm. invention <laughs> in a certain type of, of Europe. We're not talking about Caribbean British folks like inventing that we're talking about white Europeans and by extension, white Americans that, that come from Europe. Mm -hmm. So like West is just code for, for whiteness. And, Mm -hmm. and when I talk about anti-blackness, black folks don't need to be in the room. Like I I talk about anti-blackness as a political concept. uh, That is the uh, ontological opposite or, or, or polar opposite of whiteness. And when I talk about whiteness, I don't mean white people. Like I can reinforce and perpetuate whiteness in, mm-hmm. in, in the language that I use. I can reinforce whiteness in the curriculum that I choose to teach. Mm-hmm. So even in uh, organizations that are people of color led and there are mm-hmm. no white people in the room, Though they can still be agents of white supremacy, just like mm-hmm. if you're in India and you're dark skin and there's a lighter skinned Indian uh, person and you're looking at colorism, that can still reinforce uh, anti-blackness. Uh, so I'm, I'm not only talking about the folks that are in the room. And mm-hmm. sometimes people get it twisted where we say we can't have conversations about race with all white students. Uh, even if all of your students are white, you can still engage in these concepts because there are black folks, indigenous folks and people of color are still present in their imaginations and they're still present mm. in the hidden curriculum, in the written curriculum. So it's still important to engage in these conversations from a standpoint of recruitment. You see a lot of um, a lot of it embedded in very subtle ways and and. Mm in the job applications and what you're expecting. If you're asking for a non, if you're asking for a native English speaker, what does that mean? If, if language is, is a window into culture and in English was often a tool for colonization from Mm -hmm. the West. uh, And you're saying someone has to be a native English speaker. Who does that exclude? You went and colonized all of these different countries, forced them (laughs) to speak English so that they can survive in this economy that's your, uh, uh, that it's economy that's a global economy. And then you're saying, we don't want you. So it, it's, it's a euphemism for white. That's what you're looking for. Uh, 
and it shows up in a lot of other ways in in recruitment and i understand how the game goes i benefit from being one of the tokens in these different institutions because i know Mm -hmm. that i would not be as sought after if i if if there were more people who looked like me and i also Mm -hmm. know that because i've assimilated and acculturated myself to the standards of whiteness an ivy Mm -hmm. league degree uh, being able to speak like this, uh, mm-hmm. my being able to be culturally competent in white culture, more so mm-hmm. than other white people, has mm-hmm. given me the privilege of being able to gain access and navigate these different institutions. You've just listened to an episode of The Global Chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficcio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Global Chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at Global Chat Pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter, or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com.